2: I'm a feminist, but I've objectified Kelly LeBrock and Harrison Ford for as long as I can remember.
0: (laughs) I'm a feminist, but sometimes when I think about summer grooming, I feel like the fourth bridge, and feel I'll never, ever get smooth, bronzed and pedicured all over my body at the same time. And it's at those points I think, I wish I were a man. I really do. I really actually do. They don't have to groom anything, and people think they're sexy just the way they are. All people think all men are sexy, despite the fact that none of them do anything ever to groom their bodies. They're basically like animals in the wild, and people just adore them, throw money at them, throw sex at them, and what do I have? I have an appointment with somebody to pour hot wax on my genitalia and then rip it off repeatedly while I smother my screams. I hate this. So do I. Oh, it's
3: different.
0: You go.
2: I I have. (laughs) (laughs) Um. (laughs) I'm a feminist. But when a man doesn't let me on the train first, I think, a bit rude.
0: (laughs) I'm a feminist, but I worry all the time that if I were a privileged rich white man, I'd say I was a feminist, (laughs) but I wouldn't give up any of my slots on comedy panel shows or (laughs) primetime sitcoms or movie deals to women just keep them and say I was a feminist like I see men doing.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'd go on the panel shows wearing a t-shirt that said this is what a feminist feminist looks looks like. like. (laughs) So you don't need to see a woman in this chair. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a feminist but I sometimes avoid smart or glamorous events because I think I can be neither smart nor glamorous. Oh. Both. Thanks. Thanks very
0: much. <laughs> I'm a feminist but when I first wanted Carrie Quinlan today's co-host to uh, at extremely short notice like four hours co-host the guilty feminist Trump emergency special she said she had a very important dinner with her wife's friends that she couldn't get out of so I texted her three words that I knew would manipulate her into breaking her social engagement and coming to do the job. And those words were, Feminism needs you. <laughs> from King's Place in London The Spontaneity shop presents The Guilty Feminist with Deborah Francis-White and guest co-host Barry Quinlan and very special guests Bruce Walsh Reverend Kate Harford, and Leila Hussain talking about feminism and faith So these are scary topics for us because these are the kind of topics that if you get wrong in inverted commas on Twitter people come at you they come after you And they come hard. Your career may never recover. Uh, So we all just did a sacred huddle out the back where we said our mantras, which are we love each other, we look out for each other, we're free to agree, we're free to disagree. We're building empathetic paths back and forth to each other's positions and we always have the edit. (laughs) Now, we always have the edit is the mantra of this gang. But what that means is that you guys need to understand that this is a... I want to say a safe space, but it's actually kind of an unsafe space (laughs) because we're talking about these topics. So together, we need to agree that this is a sort of sacred room. So I want you to repeat after me. We, the audience... We, the audience... will go with you, the Guilty Feminist Panel... We'll go with you, the Guilty Feminist Panel... ...to some dangerous places. To some dangerous places. We go in love... To share, and to share and understand. Not to judge and tweet. Not to judge and tweet. Nothing in this room will be tweeted to the outside world. And credited to any individual. Until it makes the edit. Until it makes the edit.
3: All women. All women. Thank you. <laughs> um,
0: who listens to The Guilty Feminist? Just cheer. Woo! Who doesn't know what they're at? Just cheer. Yeah, okay. You now think you're in a cult because you've been made to repeat. I'm so sorry I should have done this first. Normally it's just a comedy show. If someone's brought you, they're thinking, fuck, I've brought her. And she's, she I said, oh, it's fun, it's fun. It's hilarious. Just stand up. And they talk about feminism. And, then, and now you've had to repeat a special mantra. <laughs> we are recording over two dates, one in April and one in August. This will explain why it's both... July. Mm. Oh, shit. <laughs> July. Thank you. May. Okay.
2: May and July. <laughs> May. One in 1976 <laughs> and one in the future.
0: <laughs> it's Time
2: Lord season. Yay! Yeah. Um, oh, isn't
0: now, it the best? If you're... now. please. So Part of this episode was recorded in May and part was recorded in July 2017. That will explain why it's both Julian of Norwich Saints Day and also <laughs> we've got a female Doctor Who. <laughs> um, so I am now going to ask everyone on the panel to introduce herself and also give you an I'm a feminist but
4: Kate. My name's Kate Harford. I work for the Universal Fellowship of Metropolitan Community Churches, which is an inclusive church which was founded specifically to deal with the inequalities in the church around gender, sexuality, and gender expression. I'm also a university chaplain, and I'm a feminist, but my favourite thing about the Bible is the moment I realise no one in it is wearing underwear. (laughs)
2: brilliant that's
0: my favorite bit now that's my favorite bit now song of solomon
5: (laughs) rubes hi i'm rubes walsh i'm a social neuroscientist and i do like parties but social neuroscience is the study of the social brain which is basically the biology of how we understand each other and ourselves and i'm a feminist but on my way here my glasses broke and I noticed that I had straight eyebrow hairs and no tweezers, and I was more concerned about the tweezers.
2: <laughs> that is true. We all got a text. Yeah, we, yeah okay. they, I'm they, not
5: Yeah, like, seriously. Who's got, got tweezers? We all
1: had, had a, group,
0: a group WhatsApp. <laughs> yeah, someone yeah. has to bring tweezers or I can't go on. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and also I'm blind. <laughs> Hashtag diva. And it was. She was so like. She was like, it doesn't matter if I can't see them because they'll be able to see me <laughs> and my eyebrows. <laughs> Basically, was what she said. I mean, that was the subtext.
6: Layla. I'm Leila Hussein, and I'm a psychotherapist by practice. I founded the first counselling service in Europe called the DALI Project for survivors of female genital mutilation, but I'm also a global ambassador for the Girl Generation Movement, which is 10 African countries. Oh, we've got TGG team here. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Inside joke. Um, I'm a black feminist, but I do rather enjoy making white feminists a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs>
2: My name is Carrie Quinlan. I am uh, a clown. Um, essentially, if you're listening at home, she's in full face paint. Absolutely am. Yeah. Uh, I'm a feminist, but when I'm the only woman in a group of men, I sometimes think that they, it's probably because they like me the best out of all the women. <laughs> and, and I'm a little bit pleased. And then I think, oh, I've betrayed the sisterhood there. And I wonder if I should invite another woman into the group but then I worry that they might like her more (laughs) and then I think oh I hate the patriarchy because it's turned being a woman into a competition in some weird part of our brains and then I think oh but I can't hate the patriarchy too much because the men I'm (laughs) with might see and then they might not like me as much (laughs) and get a new favourite one.
0: (laughs)
5: Do you have I, I, a therapist?
0: Sounds, <laughs> sounds a lot like you're living in The
2: Handmaid's Tale, Carrie. <laughs> Is that... Could I be their favourite? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, you could. <laughs> See, I've not seen it. I was away when it started. What? Um, some, how do I have to behave? I, I
0: can't believe that you didn't read the Margaret Atwood book. <sighs> it seems
2: so much like you're the kind of person that would.
5: A lesbian.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've stereotyped you as having read all Margaret Atwood's feminist tomes. It's not just you're a lesbian, you're a Radio 4 lesbian. Yep.
2: Yeah.
5: <laughs> Radio four you're lesbians.
0: married, you've got cats. I just, yeah. I've, I've, I'm so stereotyping you.
2: I can't I'm leave. not actually married, I just call her the wife. Oh, it's are you not just, married? In shorthand. <gasps> I'm can working we, on it. Can we have a wedding? Totally.
5: Excellent. Wait, but not between you and Deborah, right?
0: No, 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 no. I, I just want to officiate...
5: <laughs> Oh, okay. You, oh, you you mean,
2: I, well,
0: not quite, but I've done a few anyway. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, what, I'm stepping on Kate's patch here a little bit. Uh, Kate's what, a queer vicar, and you're sitting there as a lesbian going, anyone here can officiate? <laughs> anyone? And I'm going, <laughs> anyone look, honestly, a I'm an unqualified comedian, but I've done a few friends in their back gardens, and they've gone down the town hall for the real one. I'm Deborah Francis-White, and I'm the host of the Guilty Feminist podcast. I am a feminist, but the other day I went to a yoga class, and the yoga teacher seemed to be paying a lot of attention to some very young, athletic-looking women coming really close up next to them to listen to their breathing, correcting them from the hips. And I was thinking, you're a bit sleazy. I don't like this. And then he came up and started doing it to my friend. And I thought, what's wrong with me? (laughs) And I waited and waited and I was doing my best yoga. And eventually, towards the end of the class, I was lying on my back with a foam block between my knees, as he had told us. And he just pulled the block out from between my knees and went, I said a brick and shoved a brick in. (gasps) And I thought that'll do. (laughs) <laughs> something isn't it something it it's some in. it's some way of being sexually objectified and still counting myself among attractive women in this room in this man's eyes how fucked up is that it's so <laughs> fucked up like I was so angry with him at the same time and we left and we both said yeah that was really sleazy and was really awful does anyone else have this where you hate objectification but a little piece of you goes yes. yep, but, yeah. Oh, yeah, but yeah. please objectify yeah. me and it's because yeah. we're all yeah. being yeah. brainwashed yeah. by yeah. the patriarchy Or something much more carnal and, I don't know, off the savannah or something. I don't know what it is.
5: Maybe there's both. Maybe there's the pot. Sorry. I'm I'm not going to science all over your hilarious story.
0: Oh, no, do. Do it. Do it. Well...
5: Disgust is a very powerful emotion, right? And you have to completely suppress it in order to have sex. So self-objectification <laughs> is part of how this is. This, that's, <laughs> that's just literally straight out of the literature. That's basically that's not... sex
0: during university, isn't it? <laughs> yeah.
2: Repress the disgust
0: <laughs> so that you can tell someone you've pulled. <laughs>
2: yeah. Is that disgust at yourself or your partner or generally
5: squishy bits? Just generally, just bits. squishy bits. Yeah, yeah.
6: When we say squishy bits, are we referring to the genitals? Genuinely, you can go and
5: Google this. There's like a whole field of evolutionary neuroscience that's all about the suppression of disgust in sexual arousal. It's really, anyway, my point being that because sexual objectification is part of of how women experience being treated as a sexual being, I think that could then start to also be something that suppresses disgust, including moral disgust, at sleazy men.
0: So my ability to repress I really did disgust. just science
5: all over your funny joke and make it No, well, no, 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 no,
0: no, no. <laughs> because it is a true story. It isn't, it isn't really a funny joke. It okay. is the piece story. in me that I think before I did this podcast, I used to just carry that and I wouldn't admit it to anybody. And now I get to say it on a podcast, and your laughter validates my response and releases my shame into the ether because your laughter says, I've been there too, I felt that. Maybe. So this
2: disgust suppression
4: thing...
3: Mm-hmm.
4: What...
2: <laughs> don't worry. When about we're you, evolving, we're right? All
5: you know, <laughs> back in the past, when we we're evolving,
2: that's probably the best time to are, have done it.
5: Yeah, there are things <laughs> which expose you to a risk of infection, and one oh, of those okay. things is other people's genitals. So the automatic response mm. of disgust to things that risk contamination gets suppressed when you're aroused, so that you don't experience people's genitals that oh, way. Oh, I see what oh, you mean. You
0: right? That if you just see a penis on a bus,
5: (laughs) you go, oh,
0: no, put that away. That's awful. But if you see it erect in your bed when you have asked it to be there, you go, oh, Oh, yeah, baby, oh, yeah. And all of that bus disgust (laughs) is replaced with lust. You take the bus disgust, you turn it to lust. It's a good handy rhyme for us to remember. (laughs) Is that why they rhyme?
6: Yeah, I would think that you sounds probably, like a great guide. Yeah. Disgust yeah. for lust sounds Disgust like an awful lust. bus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So.
3: Yeah.
5: It's Why disgusting. was there a penis on the, I like on the side say of if the in bus, that, in like a in a that
0: context, if somebody—I mean, that's partly about consent as well. But it could be your partner on a bus. It's empty. It's top deck at night. <laughs> your partner goes, "Oh, shall we?" <laughs>
4: Yeah. TFL have cameras on buses. This is just an audience advisory. I take the off. <laughs> we give that.
3: Oh, a they try. do. do they?
5: Thank you. Thank you. Can um, we get the recordings? No. Uh,
0: you have been officially warned by a vicar. <laughs> all right. So feminism and faith. I think we all need to declare our faith or lack of. So I'm going to go first. Used to be Anglican. Used to be Jehovah's Witness. Atheist.
4: Kate. I was baptised in the Church of England. Kind of drifted away. Drifted back. Drifted way back for various reasons, mostly to do with the fact that I am legally married to a woman and would not be allowed to be, be a priest in the Church of England. I am a minister in the Metropolitan Community Churches, also because that's where I felt called,
2: which is a conversation we'll probably come to. Mm. Carrie. I was raised Catholic. I remained Catholic for a very long time. I had a brief foray into Anglicanism in my late teens, which I only remembered yesterday. Um, LAUGHTER because I was in Froome in Somerset and I bumped into the now-retired vicar of the Anglican Church I went to in Oxford when I was doing my A-levels. I then went back to Catholicism. I think it was around the time the Anglican Church were talking about women priests. And so Anne Widdicombe and I basically did a swap. LAUGHTER You cross the aisle with Anne
0: Whittakam coming the other way. Yeah, It's always a good sign if Anne Whittakam's coming the other way that you're going in the right direction. Um, And you're now Buddhist. And I'm now Buddhist. It's a journey.
2: It is a journey. Rubes.
5: I was raised by a Presbyterian and a Methodist. My mum's the Presbyterian, my dad's the Methodist. But then in the Anglican church until I was about seven and then it was the Methodists for a long time. And then as a teenager, I was what my granddad called a spiritual gypsy. By which he meant that I didn't stay in any one church for very long because I kind of sooner or later found out they weren't universalists, uh, which is a term we can define later. Then when I was about 18, I was friends with this really interesting vicar in training with pink hair called Kate Rowley at the
0: time. It's Al Kate. I know, it's it's a spoiler, it's a twist, it's Al Kate.
5: Yeah, Uh, who said, oh, come to church with me. So I did, and MCC North London has kind of been my spiritual home since then.
0: Mm. They love that story, don't they? It's like a rom com. Uh, Leila Hussein.
2: Well,
5: I think my
6: name just gave it away. <laughs> 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 Are you implying
0: that Barack Hussein Obama? He's also a Muslim because his name is given it away. That's what you've just said. You know, I
6: wish, actually, people, you know, mistook me with Obama, but unfortunately I get stopped at the airport because Saddam Hussein's daughter is also called Layla. In uh. case you ever notice, the resemblance is uncanny. Mm. Um, so I was born and raised as a Muslim, and I still consider myself as a Muslim woman, but I would say I'm very spiritual, so I'm open to love and peace, I would say. So anyone who has any religion where it involves music and food, I'm absolutely up for it. Mm.
0: (laughs) That's a good, yeah. Absolutely. I think my faith is very music and food based, now that you say that. So again, I'm just going to put one provocative question on the table and then let this shit go off. Uh, (laughs) I had to analyse very carefully. I think a lot of people just drift away from their religion or weren't really raised with one, and they don't have to face this question. They never really have to look their creator, in inverted commas, in the eyes the way I had to, because I lived my whole life for religion, and it was completely run by men. When I left, I had to go, what do I really think, then how do I really feel? And the thing is about the Jehovah's Witnesses, they're not great at lots of stuff, like making you feel good about yourself, but uh, they do make you read the Bible a lot. And a lot of Christian religions, we would be quite scornful when I was a Jehovah's Witness about other Christian religions, because they just seem to know John 3.16. Did you do know this scripture? Good God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. And they knew a few scriptures like that. They didn't know anything about the Bible. Whenever you knocked on their door and uh, talked to them... Are you laughing at the idea of me knocking on your door? Oh, baby, I knocked on a lot of doors. That's right, there are scarier ways to meet me, man in the second row. What's your name? Gavin. Gavin. Do you ever worry about the future, Gavin?
4: Is this podcast you basically knocking on people's computer screens and going, can I talk to you about feminism? Yeah. I, I learnt a lot
0: of technique from the Jehovah's Witnesses. You'll be able to tell that. There's 200 people in this room. I haven't come to your doors, you've come to mine.
3: That's
0: right, people. Uh, OK, so what I had to leave and I had to really look at what I knew from the Bible and go, is there a more loving, warm, female version of this that I could love? And whenever I looked at the core text, here's my problem with it. This is just an example. When King David's son Absalom went rogue, one of the things he did to be destructive and to get at his father was to rape his father's concubines. Firstly, his father, who was God's favourite king and much loved by him, had a bunch of concubines in addition to a bunch of wives, and those were seen to be property. After Absalom raped them there was no more use for them because David obviously couldn't have women uh, sexually that his son had had. So they were imprisoned until they died. And everybody sort of says, well, in those days, though, they were property. And actually, he did, was very kind because he could have thrown them into the street. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Uh, but <laughs> here's the problem I have with that. When Absalom, was ki- when Absalom accidentally died, but a, but a soldier took credit for it, and God still blessed David, so when you say, but back then they didn't know, that was a time when there was a king on earth appointed by uh, the Israelite slash now Christian God. That was his kingdom. And if you look at how his kingdom was run, if there was an island off the coast of Britain where you could go to live on God Island, now contemporarily run by a king, or maybe, I don't know, different times, a queen, I wouldn't choose to live there. And I don't truly believe Any Christians I know would choose to go and live, as women certainly, in an ancient Israel. And so therefore, no matter how we massage the text, that's our legacy and that's the organisation, even if, yeah, but there's beautiful congregations now and it's all lovely and wonderful and God is love and there's a great understanding. That's what we're working from. Mm -hmm. So that's my fundamental problem with faith and feminism. Kate.
4: Okay. So a lot of this rests on your understanding of the Bible, so I'm going to lay mine out with the understanding that a lot of other Christians think I'm a heretic for this but here's the thing I think the Bible contains a great deal of truth I don't know that it contains an enormous amount of fact and I also think that we must be aware of the fact that although I believe it was in some sense inspired by God somebody picked up a pen and wrote it and let's be honest that person was a man all the way through quite famously the bible doesn't really pass the Bechdel test or of the 66 books of the bible i know of the 66 books of the bible i think maybe two and that's only if you think that when elizabeth and mary are talking to one another about their baby boys in the womb you have to assume that those baby boys are not yet baby boys because they're just fetuses so for a lot of theologies you have to be really careful about oh, that's
2: that specific so let's that's say that specific what's the other ruth, book that passes ruth, ruth of course which yeah. has the
4: marriage vows in it as well the traditional marriage vows where you go I go your people will be my people. yeah yeah, yeah that's pretty spoken yeah. by a woman to another woman in oh, there yeah doesn't redeem King David to be fair no um the thing is that I mean to take David specifically because his story is a big part of the Hebrew Bible the Old Testament he's pretty awful like he really and that that isn't even the worst thing he does like at one point he sends a guy into battle in order for that man to die so that he can have his wife so like, this is a thing of yours, I want it, I'm going to have it. That literally breaks the Ten Commandments, you know, so it's not even as though by his own standards.
2: You might know that from the
0: song Hallelujah, <laughs> Saw Her Bathing on the Roof.
4: Uh, yes. That's Bathsheba, <laughs> yeah, that's what it refers to. You know, David is held up as an example for, I think, for two reasons. And one of the reasons is that he's absolutely awful, but there is still this kind of possibility of redemption. I don't know that David would be such a pivotal figure if we hadn't been filtering things through the patriarchy for so long, because we do also have a long history of men writing our theology. If you look at medieval Christianity, men were saints, women were nice hippie mystics. Julian of Norwich, you know, not really I, I think it might have been her saints' day in the last few days. Not but she's not really taken very seriously, you know. She's so is it today? Hurrah.
0: There's Carrie with the saint's knowledge.
2: Yeah, I don't know. Reverend Reverend Richard Coles tweeted it this morning. Uh, (laughs) I thought that was magic. (laughs)
3: Um, Follow
2: him because he used to be in the communards.
4: She's generally treated as though she's kind of lovely, but had nothing that interesting to say. But we spent hours poring over Thomas Aquinas. You know, when I was at seminary theological college, there was a unit called Patristics, which literally means the writings of the church fathers. Fathers. And we don't really have church mothers, and we're not really supposed to acknowledge them. In some circles, it's heresy to talk about Hildegard of Bingen as an important theologian. Probably what? one of the first. Hildegard? She's my favourite, Hildegard. Yes. <laughs> she was probably the first composer of modern Western music and what? one of the finest theologians of her time, and we just write her off because she was a woman. And natural science? Oh,
2: oh, oh shit. What's yeah. That, mean? that was you, but that's how shockingly brilliant <laughs> Hildegard of Bingen was.
0: Or is a that sign was from God? I guess. Yeah. I swear I put that down on the table. <laughs> no,
6: you didn't.
5: As the resident scientist, can I just say that's not how that works? If you're listening it at home, it sounded
0: like a
2: knock on the door. If you're listening at home, I
0: I just crossing myself because I feel like I had a very supernatural experience, but <laughs> I didn't. It was just clumsiness. Sorry. Go on,
4: Kate. Yeah, we can't remove the text from the context that they were written, and I know that is to some extent a cop out because you can't. Take the Bible literally. This is another thing that a lot of people will take issue with me saying, but I'm just going to say it. It's an inherently self-contradictory set of 66 different books written at different times by different people through different lenses. It contradicts itself repeatedly. Even the, the two Genesis creation narratives, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, contradict each other because they're intended as poetic understandings of the origins of humanity and the ways in which humanity can treat each other and can cope with adversity. They were never intended to be read and understood literally. It's not as though the ancient people wrote poetry and now we're wise enough to take it literally. The ancient people wrote poetry and now we're stupid enough to take it literally. This was never the intention of those texts.
0: But then how do we know any of it is literal, including Jesus or God?
4: Well, we don't. I mean, honestly, that's why we talk about faith rather than knowledge. I try to
0: avoid- So how is it useful to feminists?
4: Uh, interesting question. Well, partly, you should know about it because it exists. You know, this happens. And yeah, but I do no. know about it. Yes, true, you How do. How is it useful? How is... Why do you, see, why yeah, yeah, do you yeah. have a faith that
0: lies in those origins?
4: I can't separate faith and feminism, but I wouldn't apply a causal relationship to them in that way. So I wouldn't say, well, it's okay, I'm a priest because I'm a feminist. I do have to have a bit of a separation between the two. I, so... If scripture contains truth and if knowledge of God can contain truth, I realise I just said I wasn't going to use the word knowledge and did, but, you know, inherently contradictory nature of faith, it's fine. (laughs) Um, Uh um, And, yeah, that's really useful as well. Also, if you dry, can I get an amen? Amen. Uh, either people go really awkward and then you've got a couple of minutes to collect yourself, or they respond and you've got a couple of minutes is this to collect you giving yourself. A,
0: is it if you're giving a sermon?
4: Yeah. And you just forget what you're going to say. You yeah. just say, Can we get an amen? I don't think I've ever actually done it, but it's. you going to
0: do that in podcasting. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, next up, can I get an amen?
4: <laughs> <laughs> but if all of human life is contained in scripture and in our traditions and in our understandings of one another, which is true for any kind of community, you know, you could say that. We read feminist texts because we believe they tell us something about our lives. Obviously, I think the Bible's more significant for me than most feminist texts. But at the same time, we need to know that there are men who are capable of locking women in a cupboard because they think they're their property, and that if we don't stand up and say, actually, we haven't been your property for probably less than a century, and we're not going to allow ourselves to go back there, we're not going to allow ourselves to be treated like this, I will stand up in front of a congregation and say to men, you are not entitled to treat women like this. It is not okay that the bits of the Bible that we read in church are all the bits about men, and we don't read about Ruth, and we don't read about the women who fought against the people who tried to kill their sons, and we don't read about women's grief in war. We just read about men's victories. And we don't know that actually it was Deborah... In the book of Judges, who completely kicked everybody's butts and all of she them. She totally men. Yeah, did. She totally yeah. did. Read Judges 4 to um, Deborah and Jael, completely win the war for all the men who then just go off and take loads of credit. If you want to know how to kill a man with milk and a tent peg, Judges 4. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Genuine, useful, practical knowledge. I want to know that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well it could become in handy the way the world's going uh, it's God's blessing on David it's not what David sure. did it's not what Absalom did it's that God was very strict about lots of things like sure. idolatry he was angry with David because he sent Bathsheba's husband to the front and got him killed but he was angry about the male life he wasn't angry about the female lives And so while he was strict on lots of things, there was no law against multiple wives and concubines. There wasn't. And there was no law about slavery. There was laws about lots of things. In our contemporary sensibilities, we would see the most reprehensible things as some of the things that God okayed. And the least reprehensible things as the things that God was very angry about and sent his people, allowed
4: his people to go into slavery Mm. over. So how do you square that circle? think you don't I think you own it and you say okay so from what we understand the people who were in slavery felt they needed a justification and they needed an understanding and they needed to feel like they hadn't been entirely forsaken by God so they had to construct a narrative from within their framework that made sense of the slavery and there's two different periods of exile for the peoples of the Old Testament and in both cases They ascribe a direct causal narrative, almost a superstitious causal narrative to God's relationship to humanity. But these were written over centuries and many centuries after the events happened, if, and this is disputed, if they happened at all, because some probably did, some probably didn't. And... You know, we can't take authorship out of the Bible entirely. We can't take people out of the Bible entirely. That does a massive disservice. And people's prejudice get worked into the things that they believe. We know that. You know, most Christians I have met and engaged with who are homophobic are homophobic and Christian. They're not homophobic because they're Christian. But there are six texts in the Bible that allow them to back up their homophobia with their religion. So they do it. And the same goes for people who are um, gender essentialists. So they think women have their place and that's making the tea and men have their place and that's up the front and women can't teach men and this still happens. And they will look through the Bible for the things that back up their beliefs. And I have to acknowledge that I probably do that to some extent as well. I am much more likely to quote John 3.16, for God so loved the world, than I am to talk about David carrying sacks of foreskins. Actually, that's not true. I really like talking about David carrying sacks of foreskin <laughs> because everybody looks like you all just did and it's marvellous. <laughs> was
2: this a hobby? <laughs> <laughs> do
4: you know, I, I can't remember, and I'm looking at you to try and remember why David was carrying a sack of Philistine foreskins. Was yeah, I a mean, because because someone's got to remember it's, that.
0: Because the Philistines were the hated people of which God continually suggested the Israelites committed genocide. I mean, it's just so tricky, isn't it? And then he had to prove that he'd killed the men, so he brought back the foreskins, because it's too difficult to carry all the men. But if you've brought back the foreskins... And I do not imply, Rubes, that all of the foreskins belong to men, because I believe that some of those men were probably transgender women.
5: I don't think that you can impose a 21st century lens of gender on <gasps> that era.
0: What are you saying? Are you saying we haven't always had transgender women?
5: I'm saying that the term transgender women is very time and space specific. And
0: Proto-transgender women.
5: <laughs> um, that's transgender sort of...
0: women classic. <laughs> <laughs> Please welcome to the stage, Carrie Quinlan. <laughs>
2: Hello. I was raised Catholic, which um, made me a feminist. Thanks very much. Um, (laughs) No, I, 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 I was thinking really carefully about this, and I was trying to think if I have an earlier memory than seven of being a feminist, and I don't think I do. I mean, there must have been a moment before I was seven because patriarchy, but my first big sexist moment was, that sounds wrong, um, was when I was seven. Because when you're Catholic and seven, you have your first communion and your first confession. Terrifying. And after that, you can be an altar boy. And when I was seven, there were two things I wanted to be, a policeman and an altar boy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Now, my mum said, no, you want to be a policewoman. And I said, no, I don't. I want to be a policeman. (laughs) And I wasn't wrong, because this was the 80s. And in the 80s, police women wore heels and skirts and had to keep their truncheon in a handbag. (laughs) And simply on a practical thief-taking level, that's bullshit. (laughs) But I also wanted to be an altar boy and I could be, I could be, I'm, I'm gonna be seven, I'm gonna do my first communion and then I'm gonna be an altar boy. And then someone pointed out that there's a very specific bit of the job description that meant I wasn't allowed to be an altar boy. And I was absolutely furious. And that's, I think, my first moment of feminism, of thinking, patriarchy's bullshit. Because I learned, I watched them, and I learned what they did, and some of them were rubbish. And I could <laughs> definitely do a better job. And I was, I was furious. So that was my first brush with feminism, I think. And it's all because I was uh, brought up Catholic. I am no longer Catholic. I mean, you're always Catholic. Um, there is no escaping that religion um (laughs) but i practice as a buddhist and i came to buddhism quite late and i haven't found yet any feminist problems but i'm sure there are i have discovered good buddhist jokes i went on a buddhist retreat a couple of years ago in northumberland and it was brilliant it was mostly silent but at the end there was a lunch where you could talk and you could chat and one of the senior monks was sitting next to me and he, said, and he was um, American and very dry. And he said, uh, so what do you do when you're not meditating? No. And I said, I work mainly in comedy. And he goes, oh, no any good Buddhist jokes. Uh, and I thought, well, this is a minefield. Um, I said, I only know the one about Buddha goes to Pizza Hut and says, make me one with everything. Um,
3: <laughs>
2: which is all right. But then he said... Do you know the one about the Buddhist vacuum cleaner? (laughs) No, but I love you. (laughs) It comes with no attachments. (laughs) So Buddhism, so far, much more positive experience in that respect. Uh, Thank you very much.
0: So you go to this church, you also believe, you are non-binary, you're trans, you're an academic, you're a scientist, help me understand your faith. (laughs) I want to, I do really want to, and I can't. I can't.
5: The thing that I wanted to say all through the conversation that you and Kate were having, but I didn't want to interrupt, was that you said in the last episode that the bad stuff that Jermaine Greer has done hasn't undone the good stuff that she did. And I believe that...
0: Oh, damn. she's going to use my Greer argument again. <laughs> she's going to use my Greer
5: So in a similar way, when God looks at our lives, and I think God is a feminist, if that's not too anthropomorphic, that when God looks at our lives and our work and our ideology and what we do, God sees us for the broken flawed, weak, but fundamentally well-intentioned and trying-our-best creatures that we are. And that means that when we fuck up, when we tread on a landmine, when we are more guilty than feminist, God doesn't give up on us. God still is there to help us to be more feminist tomorrow. And I think, to use David as a particular example, you can say, well, you know, I don't really think that God was like you know, well done, David, for having concubines. But he might have been like, okay, well, that's an improvement, you know. Oh, you know, Macron, not Le Pen, Okay, all right, (laughs) keep going, keep trying, do better.
0: I would give you that, except that if there was idolatry, God wouldn't have anyone cheating on him. And he threw all of his toys out of his heavenly pram and just went to town. That he wouldn't stand up for women. And that, for me, feels like the definition of the patriarchy. It's like, if you come at me, we, you will feel the full force of my might, but if you come
4: at the most vulnerable... But, you know, the laws also say that you should be protecting widows and children and the people who are displaced and... You should be devoting a great deal more of your time to that than to your nearest neighbours and that your neighbour is the person who is most in need, not the person who's directly in front of you. And the New Testament repeatedly tells us to give away all our property and to give it to other people because property keeps you from God. And there's also, I think, such a thing as bibliolatry, you know, putting the Bible above God mm-hmm. and saying, actually, do you know what, this, this set of texts, this is my God what this tells me must be God, when actually a lot of the time we're thinking in terms of scripture, tradition, reason and experience. Is it the Methodist quadrilateral? That's how I've heard it referred to. Scripture matters enormously. My tradition also matters. And my tradition says that people in my community, in the queer communities around the world, have experienced something that they think of as God and the love of God in the presence of other queer people, praying through these scriptures and praying through these songs, and that they can recognise themselves in them. You know, that actually God's love extends to women who are outcast and dying on the street. They aren't unloved. Because so often there's this narrative that, like, if God loves you, you will prosper. And frankly, I think that's heresy. To say to people what you own is a recognition of the love of God. To say to people what other people think of you is a reflection of the love of God, is absolutely appalling. So to say to, for example, a woman who has been thrown out of her house by a man she was living with who felt she was his property, well, God clearly doesn't love you because of your situation. That I find appalling. And at the very least, by telling those stories, the Bible encourages us repeatedly to check our privilege, to look for those people, to find them, to find where they are and to campaign for their release and to fight against modern-day King Davids. Rubes mentioned universalism earlier and I think that's another really important thing is that this is about the world and about everybody and about everybody's experience and you know increasingly Christian narratives talk about the fact that there's one redemption for everybody and people might have other roots to God, other names for God, other understandings of God, no understanding of God at all but we don't think that that means that they're separated or damned or cast out. And those are things that, actually, I think, as feminists, we do need to know and to understand. Because when people come at us with things like, well, God condemned the Moabites, and therefore it's okay for me to condemn everybody in Syria because of Islamic State, well... (laughs) No, because we're also told to love the poor and the outcast and to love our neighbour and to give money to those in need and to give it away even if it's our last absolute penny and that none of us will ever live up to the love of God, but we shouldn't ever stop trying. Layla,
0: is there a place for feminism in contemporary Islam?
6: Oh, absolutely. I think it's important, actually, in this conversation that we do differentiate between the holy books that we are referring to to the people who are practising it, and I know that from my own experience because, you know... The Islam the world now sees on TV, it's also new to me. It's Mm -hmm. not the Islam I grew up in. I mean, the word Islam itself means peace. And having grown-ass men, you know, shouting the odds and blowing themselves up, it's nothing to do with the word Islam. And one of the first teachings of Islam is you cannot judge anyone but God. So only God's allowed to judge us, so fuck you. Don't try to judge me. I use that excuse all the time. You've been un-Islamic. You know, that's always my favorite word, because you're judging me. And, God, you know what? I, I'm actually quite scared talking about this. And I thought, oh, my God, all the Islamic clerks out there will be horrifying that I'm speaking on Islam right now, because I'm not necessarily considered to be the idea of a Muslim woman. And if you look at, the again, the scriptures of Islam, And I would really recommend a documentary called The Life of Prophet Muhammad that was made by Ragi Omar for Al Jazeera. Amazing documentary, three-part documentary that really unpicks. And what actually happened over the centuries, the Quran was actually changed and it was written by misogynist men. Mm -hmm. And what they've done, actually 150 quotes were taken out based on the Prophet Muhammad's first wife, who was 20 years older. Mm. She was a divorcee. She was his boss. She was an entrepreneur, so no one ever talks about that.
0: So the original plot of the Quran was basically like The Apprentice.
6: Or something. Absolutely, <laughs> she couldn't find him. She couldn't find him, so he married her instead. And he actually, the story was he married her for her power. So the Islam we hear about today, it's a totally different version because we need to recognise, like I said, there's a holy book. There's patriarchal men who rewritten these books to fit into their own agendas. That's the difference. And for me, a lot of my values and principles, it came from by being brought up as a Muslim girl, by being told that I'm equal, I can go out there and have a career and have a job. I do charity work. It's so important. I mean, the idea of sharing, I think most religions share that. I mean, Mm -hmm. the idea, I remember my mother during Ramadan, you know, when we are fasting, the reason we fast is to understand how people don't have any food Feel Even I'm really quite concerned of the big feast we have later on. It's not really, (laughs) it doesn't really fit in with that. But I remember my mom would actually cook for all our neighbors who were atheists, Christians. It was something that we did. It was just something that we all were part of. So this idea that, you know, Al-Shabaab or, you know, Al-Qaeda is now a representation of Islam, for me, when I look at them, I'm looking at a group of criminal men. That's all I'm seeing, who are misogynist and who are angry, not getting enough sex, I think, (laughs) and just pissed off and use religion as a reason to attack us. And we need to be honest, religion has been used to control. That is not a myth, it's a Mm -hmm. fact. Mm -hmm. But I think we need to constantly remember to differentiate both.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: hello guilty feminist listeners this is deborah from the guilty feminist interrupting the guilty feminist briefly to tell you some news if you are in melbourne there'll be a guilty feminist event as part of the wheeler center's festival of questions that will be on october the 15th tickets are 20 dollars And the name of the event is What the Hell? The Handmaid's Tale in 2017. I will be hosting that. Please get a ticket now if you would like to, as they are selling fast. That's October 15th at the Wheeler Centre. Go to wheelercentre.com. If you're in Brisbane, there are only a few tickets left now for our show at the State Library of Queensland on October the 20th. If you're in Sydney, we've added an extra date on the 21st of October. And that's the only date now where there's tickets left. And that's at Giant Dwarf. If you're in Auckland, the Auckland Town Hall shows have sold out. So we've added an extra date on the 29th of October. If you are in Leicester, we are there on the 1st of December. That's Leicester in the UK. We're at the Y, so go to ymca.co.uk. And if you're in London, all current Guilty Feminist shows have sold out but there are global pillage shows on the 5th and 18th of November. Please come and be in the high of mind. They're at 4pm at King's Place, the 5th and 18th of November. We would love to see you there. Also, Guilty Feminist Loud Voices is four half-hour scripted pieces by diverse writers. We would love you to go and listen to those and you can find them at loudvoices.libson.com. And the writers are me, Bishke Ali, Avery Edison and Matilda E. Beanie. Please go and listen to those. They're really good fun. They're really interesting and they've got terrific casts in them. You can also search for them on Apple Podcasts. See you soon. Hope to see you somewhere live. (laughs)
1: luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life.
0: I remember believing in God when I was taught about him at Sunday school. Uh, My parents decided we should go to Sunday school. I thought at the time it was for my religious edification. I now realise it was to get us out of the house (laughs) on a Sunday morning. And I moved to a new school when I was seven years of age, and I didn't have any friends at the new school. I wasn't bullied. I just hadn't found a gang yet. And at Sunday school, they told me you could always talk to God. So that's what I did. So at lunchtime, I'd hang out with God. (laughs) And that's true. I did, and I used to just sort of chat away to him, Um, you know. But after a while, there was—I'll be honest—there was an age gap, (laughs) and he—he was—he just—he wasn't that interested in hopscotch skipping, or any of the other things that children did before the internet. Um, It was a tricky time, and I developed—I got friends, and in fact, I'll tell you how I got a friend. A friend invited me to girls brigade and girls brigade does anyone know girls brigade it's like a religious girl guides and we would go away i'm from australia my whole childhood was basically praying in the bush we would go away on girls brigade camps because that's what i did to get friends i had one friend god and then his friends girls brigade his best mates and we would go to the bush genuinely like where you see on i'm a celebrity get me out of here and you'd go away for weeks at a time, away from your family, and there would be an outdoor chapel, which would basically be someone will have erected a quite frightening crucifix in the bush, which looks like someone could go up on it. You know, it's not like one in a church that's sort of all <laughs> polished and sort of representative. No, it's an actual great big crucifix that looks like something out of a horror film, um, and then sort of chairs, and then you'd go and you'd pray. And I remember once, one of the girls' brigade teachers, she, honestly, she prayed for 45 minutes, until eventually we were all kind of playing noughts and crosses, and the other girls' brigade teachers were like, oh, come the fuck on. <laughs> um, awful, awful things that happened to children back then, before there were laws. Um, and we used to sing, all the time singing, 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 singing. Um, Jesus, the man in sandals came. Do you remember that song? No? Okay, uh, <laughs> do you know this one? Um, Uh, Give me oil for my lamp, keep me burning, give me oil for my lamp, I pray, hallelujah, give me oil for my lamp, keep me burning, keep it burning till the break of day, and I shall sing, Hosanna, sing, so you, you get the idea. Do you know this verse? Give me wax for my board, keep me surfing for the Lord. Give me wax for my board, I pray. Hallelujah, give me wax for my board. Keep me surfing for the Lord. Keep me surfing till the break of day. Well, I do. (laughs) Because I was raised in a sort of biblical version of home and away. (laughs) When I was 14, uh, my parents decided that we should uh, study the Bible with Jehovah's Witnesses, and that happened for two years. Every Friday night, they would come, and we would sit around our dining table, and we would read from a book, and they would read a paragraph, and then there'd be a question at the bottom of the paragraph, and the answer to the question was in the paragraph. And you would have to say, the answer, but in your own words. And that is, if you're interested in doing it, how you create a high-control group of people who learn to answer a question based on what you've just said. We joined at 14. I was baptised at 16 years of age, a minor, two years before I was allowed to vote or drink, which turned out to be a moot point because Jehovah's Witnesses is not allowed to vote or have too much to drink anyway. Here are some other things that Jehovah's Witnesses is not allowed to do. Buy raffle tickets. Sell raffle tickets. Sponsor a whale. Oh. No, give any money to a charity mugger of any sort. Oral sex, even if it's your birthday. <laughs> Masturbation, even if it's Christmas. (laughs)
3: Christmas.
0: (laughs) Anal sex, even if you're gay. Being gay. (laughs) And pretty much anything else fun you can think of, including yoga. And I know what you're thinking, why no yoga? Because your mind will go blank and the demons will get in. (laughs) Obviously.
2: Thank you very much. I think Jesus, the man with sandals, is my new favorite. <laughs> the man thing. with
0: sandals came you know, to help the poor. That's what he's famous lame. for. <laughs> was
6: oh, was the man with song? sandals. That
0: yeah. was the song. I come out of hives in churches. Unless it's a wedding, if there's some sort <laughs> of formula, a wedding or a funeral or something, where I go, oh, this is ritual, then I'm absolutely fine. But in our wedding, because I got married, because I sang with the choir in my Oxford chapel, so I got married in our Oxford chapel because the closest that I feel to a sort of we're all connected and a sort of spirituality is choral music and I wanted the choir to sing that I had sung with. When we got married, we said to the chaplain, you know, we want this service with the choir, but you should know we've got to be upfront. we're atheists. And she said, I absolutely understand that, I understand your association here, and we said, we're absolutely fine. And my husband just said to her, So we're absolutely fine with anything within the ritual, but please no off-piste God. (laughs) That was sort of how we managed it. But I I feel like I could step across for Kate because I want further understanding. I don't see myself as ever someone who will believe again, but I want to understand what Kate believes and why Kate believes it and Rubes and Leila and Carrie. I think I'm the only atheist on the panel,
2: pure atheist on the panel, is that true? I suppose technically I'm an atheist in that I don't believe in a god. Buddhism doesn't have a god. But I believe that there's something greater than all of us and it's all of us. But I was asked to talk about Buddhism and feminism and I had to go and read about it. (laughs) Because it turns out I have absolutely, I, I came to Buddhism quite late on. So my experience of it is of an adult coming to a faith, coming to... A practice, rather than someone coming to this, a massive history, in the way that as a Catholic, there was a weight of history. So, kind of to my shame, my knowledge actually of the history of Buddhism is much less than my knowledge of the history of Christianity. But looking at it, oh, it's frighteningly similar, in that you start with a noble and brilliant figure talking about love and peace, and then you get some blokes around them writing things down and scribbling in, oh, no girls, no girls allowed, there are no girls allowed. Buddhism is seen as extraordinarily noble, particularly by Westerners, as a groovy thing and not like the Abrahamic faiths and it's cool and it's, you know, it's really... Big-hearted and everything's good. It's also slightly irritatingly for a lot of Buddhists, a lot of Westerners who like the idea of Buddhism but not religion. Go, yeah, but it's a philosophy, isn't it? It's <laughs> not religion; it's a philosophy, which I don't really understand. But I've decided to rise above it because I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ge- genuinely, it's troubled me for I've, I've, it's troubled me for ages that I've I've got no answer to that, and I suddenly in the last year have just gone. I'm just going to let that go. <laughs> That's the most Buddhist thing I can do. Buddhism has been rooted in the cultures in which it's been. And pretty much all cultures ever have been patriarchies. Certainly all the the religions that have come down to us are rooted in patriarchal cultures. Buddhism, like Christianity, is exactly like that. So with all of them, I think you have to get back to the root of it. So with Christianity, you have to get back to Christ. And there's not much you can argue with there. I reckon. Same with the Buddha. If you go back to that, if you go back to the heart of all of them, it's pretty good. The trouble is that they have then grown up historically within cultures that are patriarchal. And so years after the Buddha, who was happy to teach women, (gasps) amazing. uh, And there were Buddhist nuns and Buddhist monks early on. After he died, the Buddhist monks went, we need more rules for the women. Uh, the, most of those rules are you've got to listen to us you got you he's, boys are best
0: they, they sound like saint paul in the bible it's
2: exactly that because yeah. saint paul in it's my totally. opinion he is my bet noir in the bible
0: mm-hmm. because apart from the old testament which is its own dark waters when jesus comes and says hey just love each other and he's really nice to women and he basically says love god love your neighbor that's it And Paul, I think, was the great marketing man Mm. of Christianity because Peter said, yeah, let's just stay home and this is just for Jewish people. And Paul went, I reckon we can sell this. (laughs) I reckon we can take this out. And he was the marketing guy and he got on a boat and he went out. He basically created his own internet. And everywhere he arrived, he converted and really took it out there. Without Paul, Christianity, I don't, I mean, I, with no, no disrespect, I right. we wouldn't have Christianity because when the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem, Christianity would have gone down with it. But because Paul had taken it around the world, it survived. But Paul was exactly that guy who went, um, so yeah, Jesus, never met Jesus, never met the guy young up and coming very ambitious couldn't get on quite how he wanted to get on and basically saw I think this young breakaway group and went I reckon I could run this this is just my theory <laughs> Kate
5: is now going to correct and me And then but. sexism sells
0: Yeah yeah and then he started going oh yeah everything Jesus said plus no gays What <laughs> No no gays What Jesus never said that no he did You weren't you weren't you weren't here He d- he definitely never said it No I saw him where I uh, went to Damascus. When? The other day. What? He's been dead for ages. <laughs> I had a vision. Scales fell from my eyes, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Cut to the end. Uh, he said no gaze. What? Yeah, and by the way, women don't speak. Women, women don't speak. No, no, that's the old, that was the old law. No, Jesus came to free us from that. Definitely. That's, that he was very clear on that. No, he's changed it back. <laughs> no, no women. No women. No gays. Uh, a woman. Women can't negotiate. Since
2: he died. He's had a
0: rethink. He's had a think, He's had a rethink. He's thought. Do you know yeah. what? I rebooted that, uh, and actually, he's gone it wasn't
5: as. His s- dad's had a go at him for being too liberal. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. Yeah.
2: It wasn't as good Roops, as the classic. Terrible <laughs>
5: theology. I'm sorry. But that's it like, it
2: that's as, why he popped back. <laughs> that's why he had to pop it's back. by the
0: way, it wasn't yeah. as good as the classic. And I've actually gone back to when the women started talking. I thought, no, actually, it was better before. <laughs> when you started saying, actually, Gaze, far, actually it was better before. And it basically brings in. If you read his letters. It's all going brilliantly in the Gospels. And then his letters are like, what?
4: Okay. (laughs) So that's a lot. (laughs) Um, Steps in the reverend. Paul had about 2,000 years of Jewish history to work with. And he had been a Jewish scholar. Mm -hmm. And what he was trying to do... I struggle with Paul. I'm really Paul ambivalent. Sometimes I think he was brilliant and he was a pioneer and he would walk into Jewish communities and say your women worship with you and you um, don't have to eat kosher food and you don't have to circumcise your boys and everybody is absolutely welcome. And then you sort of get this sense that there was, but you know, because your women are worshipping with you it's a, it's a flying bishops thing for anyone who's in the Church of England. It's like, you know, we can have you together, but as a concession for some of the men who can't cope, maybe cover your heads and, you know, maybe give the men a bit of space. So, now, Oh, so your argument is Paul marketed Christianity
0: as a sort of compromised position, but then what happened when he took it out on the road?
4: Like, I'm just saying, he's out. Yeah, I mean, not all of his letters Ephesus, were, were written to Jewish communities. But he was was having to work within a framework of an awful lot of Jewish theology that was going back and forth. And also, we only have one half of his letters. We don't know the questions he was asked. If the questions he was asked were, you know, should women be naked or cover their heads? Obviously, that wasn't the question he was asked. But then, you know, you can sort of... We get half a conversation. We're listening into half a telephone call with the letters of Paul. And we have some sense of where he's going. Um, Bear in mind also that he was martyred and I don't think he intended to write scripture. When he refers to scripture, he probably didn't, the gospels were probably written after Paul's letters. So he's not even talking about the gospels. When Paul says scripture, he means you know the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the Torah. That's what he means. He's not actually saying, you know, well, there's this and there's Jesus and now it's magic. And um, so let's take this bit that Mark said and this bit that I said and this bit that Barnabas said and we'll put it all together and create a coherent theology. He wasn't writing a doctoral thesis. He was writing letters to people who were struggling with everyday issues. And in that context, what women were and how people behave in church were everyday issues. But but he are you also... not pitching him
0: as the Gok of the no. first century?
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, unless Gok was also ordaining women deacons which Paul totally seems to have been. What? Where's that? There are women deacons in the Book of Acts. And he refers Where? frequently. Oh, don't <laughs> yeah. I'm going to need chapter oh, no. and verse on that. I've never
0: heard of that. Um, I'm now, have Layla, to later. You spoke very cogently and authentically and clearly about Islam. Is there anything you missed out you would like to have said?
6: Actually, do you know what was really interesting? As being the Muslim woman on this table, to listen to four of you actually talk about a different religion for once, because I think the word Islam and Muslim has had a different type of exposure in the media. There's a difference between people practicing a religion, I mean, whether it's Islam or any other religion, versus what's actually on these books. And it's important to remember, a lot of these books actually changed over the years. For example, actually, the, the Quran I grew up with is totally different than the Quran that I'm now seeing. I mean, some of them actually says, kill the Americans. <laughs> That's exactly oh, what it says. Really? I- I'm not joking. It actually says that. It literally says... Kill Americans, and you feel they've taken poetic license. Then I, mean, I wish <laughs> <laughs> with ancient scripture. So it's. I mean, and I feel quite. I, I. I. feel I'm that girl in the middle of this bridge because I'm not necessarily visibly. There's again. There's an assumption to be a Muslim, you have to be wearing a headscarf and that's not actually true for majority of Muslim women if I specifically focus on women. There's this idea even from the West now, I feel like I'm being pressured by the West in order to be accepted as a Muslim woman and I have to wear the hijab because you know there's a supermodel who's wearing now the hijab so I'm like, oh yet again we've been left out from this space. So mm-hmm. for me it's important to kind of recognize that islam is not what you see in the mainstream mm. media actually that's a very small minority group and actually i was actually somebody who was always interested in all religions at a very young age and i read a lot of these books and actually even in islam it does not say women cover up their hair it just says actually it says cover your naked body with an outer garment that's Which, all is it's Which is good advice. Which is good advice.
0: Hold on Kate's got some news. we go to our correspondent live in Bible. live in Corinthia.
4: <laughs> it was not the book of Acts. I was wrong. In Romans in Romans 16 at the very end Paul ends with I commend to you our sister Phoebe a deaconess of the church in Cenchreae oh, receive Phoebe. her in the lord in a way worthy of the saints and give her any help for she has been a great help to many people including me and then greet Priscilla who is described as one of his fellow workers, and Mary, who worked very hard for you. There's no real evidence that Paul actually silenced the women in his congregation, which is one of the reasons people think some of those verses about silencing may have been pseudo-Pauline. The, and say also hi to Priscilla with... and
0: Mary doesn't imply that they're... They're like, no. we're all working for the Lord. I'll give you Phoebe... And I like to think that she was like Phoebe from Friends. Yeah, almost
4: certainly.
0: I love
6: Phoebe from or Friends. Or the Deacon of Fleabag.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that would also be enjoyable. Please welcome to the stage, Reverend Kate Harford.
4: most people walk up here carrying a notebook, I just have the book. Um, and I do have a conversion quota, so see me afterwards. <laughs> For a lot of people, a major barrier to faith, as we generally conceive of it, being a book, a sky person, and us. One of the major barriers is the construct of both the book and the sky person. So if you grow up from a very young age being told, this is God, God is man, you are woman, you are inferior, that is absolutely bound to have an impact on you. So the uh, brilliant feminist pastor, Nadia Boltzweber, who's in, uh, I think, in Colorado in the US, once said that we may as well pray to a red-headed God as a male God because anything that you're doing in that space, any anthropomorphism of God undermines the very idea of faith. So the whole concept that we're all created in God's image is fundamentally undermined the second we pick up a binary pronoun. So in our utopian, post-patriarchal, post-everything society, we wouldn't need to gender God because we understand that humanity is on a spectrum and all spectrums of human gender are to some extent non-binary but I think that generally when we read the Bible we do sometimes forget that what we're reading is what I think is genuinely inspired by God but inspired by God through cis men for cis men so we don't see and for, for centuries and millennia we haven't really seen some of the things that people are now beginning to say maybe they're in plain sight so, for example, I'm at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 37, if you want to look it up. Can anybody tell me anything about Joseph's coat? Oh. Oh. <laughs> Deborah can. Is it a Technicolor dream goat? It was red and yellow and pink and green and scarlet and black. Yeah, except it's not. Actually, if you... I know, I'm really sorry. I could have brought 20 different translations of the Bible and given you 20 different translations of this one word, but my time is limited, so I shan't. But the Hebrew... Um, forgive me, I don't speak Hebrew, so the pronunciation is going to be appalling. The Hebrew phrase is ketone pasim, which some people say is a long-sleeved garment or an ornamented garment, and that's where we get the idea of Technicolor Dreamcoat from. But... This phrase occurs, ooh, microphone and Bible, dodgy combination. This phrase occurs again in 2 Samuel when we're reading about a woman called Tamar. Tamar is one of the many women in the Bible who model the bravery of survivors of sexual violence and the meaning of sexual violence on the life of a young woman. She is attacked by a man called Amnon, who is son of King David. And the text says that in order to get to her, in order to access her sexually he has to tear her ketone passim now the marvelous theologian Peterson Toscano has pointed out that the correlation of these two texts may actually be no coincidence at all but when cis men read these they put the footnote this is the footnote in my bible in both of these verses the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain But if you are queer, you think, it's not uncertain. That's a boy in a princess dress who got bullied by his brothers and sold into slavery for not conforming to the binary. So the problem is not the book. It's who we've been allowing to read the book. Amnon, as I said, was the son of King David, and when we talked about this before, I did end up rather sheepishly mumbling into a microphone, yes, I think David's a little bit problematic. That's an understatement. David has men killed so he can marry their wives, he watches women bathing without their consent, he's a very complicated individual, But the texts say repeatedly that because he was king of Israel and because traditionally we ascribe a lot of the writings of the Psalms, which are these beautiful hymns and poems in the middle of the Bible to him. So he was blessed greatly by God. And it suddenly occurred to me this was a real sort of 4 a.m. thought that we actually have a really good model for a man who is deeply corrupt, who has a deeply corrupt son, who suddenly finds himself inheriting an awful lot of power, and the men around him make the presumption that he was blessed by God. The problem isn't King David. It's that whenever men see other men with power, Donald Trump, (laughs) (laughs) they turn around and say, this man was blessed by God. There is a great deal of value to be gained from a faith that can exercise the amazing hermeneutic of suspicion that feminists bring to the table and acknowledge that if God is rich and complicated and the world is rich and complicated and we as individuals who, in the view particularly of my faith, are created in the image of God are rich and complicated, that it isn't enough to say that 2,000 years and more of cis men reading a text and telling you what it's about is good enough – it is completely valid to take a feminist reading of a text and to run with it, and we must never let the patriarchy tell us otherwise. Thank you.
0: Uh, Could we have a question, please? Who's got a question there? There's a question there. I'd
4: class myself as a Christian. I go to an Anglican church in south-west London, and...
2: I have kind of recently been looking into being a feminist and a Christian. And one of the reasons I think it does mesh so well is because I see Jesus as a feminist. And I think there are lots of examples in the Gospels that really reflect that. So
5: just wondering if you agreed and thought Jesus was a feminist.
0: Jesus is certainly a lot more feminist than the Old Testament God. That is certainly true. Um, but I saw an amazingly convincing documentary that Jesus was taken by the three wise men when he was 13 because they were men from the East, and they were... In this documentary, the theory was they were Buddhist, and they would come, and they would see children, and they would get the sort of holy men, and they'd go, oh, this one. And the reason he disappears from the narrative from 13 to 30 is because he was then taken to India by these wise men and brought back, having learnt the teachings of Buddha. Yeah, baby. And then... (laughs) And it actually so makes sense. And I never normally went for a conspiracy theory. Let's be very clear. I'm no Dan Brown, but my God. It was so compelling, because basically, everything he was saying... And when I went to Israel, I lived there for a while, I really understood it. I went, oh, I see, he's this beachy guy, like, from a beach town like where I grew up. And came down to... I mean, it's not for me <laughs> like- to compare myself.
3: But <laughs> it I got circle. it.
0: Like, if I, from the Gold Coast, turned up in Australia, in Melbourne, I'd be like, oh, you're a Gold Coast girl. Similarly, he's a Nazarene. He's a beach guy. He came in his sandals.
2: Waxing Call a back, board. yes. No one
0: <laughs> Give me wax my board, keep me surfing for the Lord. I knew it would come back, and came down. And there were all the intellectual men sitting around, and what he was saying was very Buddhist. It was, you know, love one another, love your neighbour, stop judging, stop being horrible to women, cast the first stone. All of that stuff is so Buddhist. And in this documentary, what they showed was that that man had been crucified, taken down from the cross early. This was their narrative, the local Indian narrative. There's a local place in India where a similar name to Jesus, local Indian version of Jesus. He got crucified, got taken down early, had been in a coma, got up, went back to India where he wouldn't be killed. And they have a sepulcher with this man and they have his hands. He lived a long life and had kids and everything and was a holy man. They have his hands and feet, like in concrete, and the feet have holes in them. And they said in this documentary, if we could open that, we can't because it's a holy relic, but if we could open it and look and we could see that body had been crucified, basically that would be the end of the Christian story. But it wouldn't be because, of course, people have their own faiths and their own beliefs. But that's my theory, Kate. (laughs) (laughs)
2: So there's an awful lot of overlap with Christ and the historical Buddha. The messages are about transcendence, they are about presence, Mm -hmm. they are about a middle way, they are about being groovy to each other. And one of the reasons I am no longer a Christian and I'm a Buddhist is that part of the mainstream message of Christianity is that this individual was special Mm -hmm. and you can't be like that. This was a one-off, Christ was... God. And the message within Buddhism is that's a potential for all of us, and this person is an example and not exceptional in the sense that it's not something that anyone who puts the effort in and chooses to do that and makes the sacrifices that are involved can do, can be a transcendent person. And that distinction is a, I think, religious one rather than a faith one and is central to where I've gone.
4: When it comes to the
2: Gospels and feminism, though,
4: we do, again, need to remember that they were written a really long time. A lot of the New Testament letters were written before the Gospels, so actually some of Paul's writings are earlier than some of the Gospel stories, which is kind of interesting in its own right, and I won't, I won't bore you with it. I'll leave you to do your own research, and I will, I'll issue a test via Twitter. <laughs> um, but you know, very often there's a passage in John, and I can't remember what chapter it is. I was about to say John 4, but that's the woman at the well. But she's good too. Read John 4. Um, and the woman at the well is interesting because she's been married so many times, and Jesus is just like, yeah, whatever, you've been married loads of times. Bof. Um, but there's a specific example that's often captioned in Bibles, and the bold headings in Bibles, incidentally, are written in. They aren't part of the what we have as the original text, which also problematic but the earliest texts we have don't have those headings in they're put in by translators and it's usually put as the woman caught in adultery Um, there's a theologian called simon hill who has recently written a book where he describes that story as the men caught in hypocrisy and it's the famous story of the woman brought before jesus and he says well you know if anyone here has never sinned then you win the right to stone her and they haven't, so they don't. And they all kind of wander away looking shamefaced, and he says, neither do I condemn you. There's some arguments that the line go and sin no more, incidentally, is a later edition. So literally all he says is, whatever. Like, you having sex? Yeah. You can't see my facial expressions at home, I realise they're a bit kind of waves. Um, LAUGHTER and it is really important that we remember that that actually this was so countercultural for the time, but because it was then framed and read by people who'd been brought into the culture that it was contrary to, we've continued to read it as if it was never countercultural and as if it never happened. And it's you know it's taking us two thousand years to go right back to where the earliest disciples were. I'm a universalist.
5: I believe we're all going to heaven.
4: Yeah. Well, yes.
0: There was
5: that. I'm a universalist. I believe we're all going to heaven.
4: Well, then it's not much
0: of a... There's no incentive, is there, if we're all going?
5: It's well, not about bourgeois hierarchy. It's about eternal bliss.
0: Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, no, good. Yeah, <laughs> no, sure. Sure. If you have any more questions, we will be in the bar because um, I need a long, hard drink. If anyone's getting a drink in... It's the bars upstairs. If anyone's getting a drink in, I have vodka soda with a little dash of cranberry and, yes, I will be having a double. Um, I really, really just want to say a huge thank you to people who've come here tonight to be very brave. Some of the things that people have said here tonight, they've said, we've all said things with good hearts and some of the things we say may have blowback. That's the truth on the internet. And if that happens, thank you for sharing it and sorry. Um, (laughs) uh, Has anyone got any, like a heckle they need to shout about anything that's been said? My wife's hot. (laughs) Your wife's hot? Oh. Is Kate your wife? <laughs> Tom's the producer, he never shouts, my wife's yeah. <laughs> Tom, you got anything to say? Get up with it! <laughs> and talk. that's what Kate says in bed, and that's what Tom says in bed. <laughs> Layla, do you have anything to plug?
6: the clinic that i founded the dahlia project we currently are going to be looking for some funding so if you just google dahlia project fgm how do you how, how do you, you spell it d-a-h-l-i-a project
0: dahlia project
6: dahlia project and type fgm because there are a couple of ones so just type fgm and there's a donation button we really really this is the only counseling service in europe rubes
5: wash mm. You can follow me on Twitter, it's RubesJW. I'm also beginning to do some sort of practical neuroscience for feminism videos on YouTube, so trying to think about how we can have conversations that use the knowledge from neuroscience of understanding how people think and how people have conversations to help us to better have those conversations, both in this space, but also then when we go out and we face people who we really, really don't like or who we are trying very hard to like.
2: Carrie, um, uh, we're all one. Be excellent to each other. um, Have compassion. Be as present as you possibly can. And um, you'll be golden with all the faiths that are good in the world.
0: And how can we follow you, a great (laughs) one?
2: You really don't have to. Just find your own way. Um... (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's That's her Twitter handle. She is at, you really don't have to, find your own way. (laughs) Follow her now. Uh, And Kate,
4: what can we do for you? Can we come to your church? Can we get an amen? You can, but I feel like that would be kind of self-serving. But you can. Um, I sometimes preach at Northern Lights Metropolitan Community Church in Newcastle-pontine, and they're lovely even or especially when I'm not there, depending on how much you've enjoyed this. Um, (laughs) uh, You can find more about MCC, my church, at um, mccchurch.org, and we are global, and we do have all sorts of outreach into countries where it is really, really difficult to be queer at the moment. There is a project in the northeast run by Northern Lights Metropolitan Community Church and a charity called Mesmac, which works in sexual health. It's called Rainbow Home, and it brings people who are asylum seekers and are... LGBTQIA etc and going through the process into a safe space once a month to have lunch together takes them out on socials helps with some casework but it's massively massively underfunded and we could really do with a little bit of help and I'm going up to see them this coming Friday which will have been long gone by the time anybody listening at home hears this but uh, it would be really lovely if I could take them a present from you and they would be super duper grateful as would I.
0: So if you're super wealthy, just get a full hundred out of your bag and <laughs> pop it in the tin. If you have no money to give and you've paid for your ticket here tonight, please don't feel obliged. But if you've got a quid, if you've got five out, then they'd really, really appreciate it. At Kate underscore Elizabeth. At Kate underscore Elizabeth. And I'm at Deborah FW. Uh, if you could go to globalpillage at globalpillage.net and download some episodes and listen to my diversity-based comedy panel show, Uh, which is the antidote to all the panel shows you see on the telly that are full of white men, straight white men, (laughs) straight white men without any other (laughs) diversity, who also are great. Listen, some of my favourite husbands are straight white men, but (laughs) I'm just saying it's nice to include others, so please go there, download it, and check it out.
2: Uh, Follow The Guilty Feminist on Twitter, at guiltfempod. Check out our Instagram, instagram.com slash theguiltyfeminist. Like our Facebook page, please. Sign up to our mailing list to get notified as soon as a new episode is released. And go to iTunes and rate, review and subscribe. Five stars. Because it helps other people to find the podcast. You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White. Yes, our host, Carrie Quinlan.
0: And- Special guests, Rubes J. Walsh, Reverend Kate Harford and Leila Hussain. The recording engineer was Chris Sharp. Music was by Mark Hodge. The producer was Tom Salinski for The Spontaneater Shop. Thanks to Zoe, Meta Sally and everyone at King's Place, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit
3: guiltyfrevalence.com.
2: know the other hymn and my favourite bit of that of the, of the other one was that at the end of the chorus someone would get it wrong and do an extra of <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. Sing Hosanna sing, sing Hosanna sing Hosanna to the King of Kings sing, sing Hosanna, Hosanna sing Hosanna, Hosanna sing Hosanna to the King of oh. <laughs> brilliant every time Hi,
0: I'm Sophie Hagen. You may know me from such things as co-hosting episode 1 to 29 of The Guilty Feminist. I'm just here to let you know that I'm on tour of the UK and Denmark with my brand new stand-up show Dead Baby Frog, which is about emotional abuse. My whole tour is anxiety safe, it has gender-neutral toilets and disabled access all around. Go to sophiehagen.com to find out what I mean by that, to find out where I'll be and to get tickets. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter. And why not listen to my new project, The Made of Human Podcast.
1: Bye!